Sorry for the interruption. Coming up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Our podcasts keep community strong, and for the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and show your support for community-owned and community-run media. Happy listening. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 8.55 a.m., and I'm here with Inez and Leela. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Oh, no. Our mics were turned up so, so much. Sorry for everybody <laughs> who got like, a big jolt out of bed or uh, in the car. I hope uh, you didn't break too hard. Um, <laughs> wow, good start. Uh, great professional radio show. Um, it's, been, it's been a week. How, how have you both been? I have been a bit overwhelmed. Is that everybody else's vibe? <laughs> yeah, it's been a bit of a turbo week for me. <laughs> yeah, I think turbo is uh, possibly a good way to to describe it. Um, but you know, you know, when we feel overwhelmed by some of the stuff that's happening in the world, I, I've always found it really grounding to come back to radio and be able to speak to. Um, you know, some of the incredible people that are doing organizing work and doing work around, you know, justice for folks that, uh, you know, for us, but also for folks that are most marginalized at these most difficult times. So um, perhaps we'll jump into a rundown of what we've got on today. Um, I'll kick it off. We are going to be playing a bonus segment from the upcoming episode of 3CR's Women on the Line program, produced by me, featuring Catherine Gledhill-Tucker and Samantha Floriani discussing digital rights and, pos- and the possibilities and pitfalls of regulation. And Kat is a Noongar technologist and digital rights activist serving on the board of Electronic Frontiers Australia. And Sam is a digital rights activist and writer currently working as program lead for Digital Rights Watch. And this snippet is going to feature Kat and Sam speaking about queerness and digital spaces. After that, we're going to be joined by Alex from the Renters and Housing Union, or RAHU, to speak about some of the key insights around housing availability and affordability from the recently released 2021 census data, as well as in a report published this week by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, which highlights rising rental stress and a lack of public housing availability in Australia. And then we'll be joined by Laura Riccardi from WISE, which is the Women's Health in Southeast. And they are a health promotion officer at WISE, and she's a project lead on regional strategy to improve sexual and reproductive health and has been an activist for reproductive rights for many years. And she joins us today to speak on an inclusive abortion access, barriers to care, stigma, and how to support protecting and enhancing these rights following the overturning of the landmark abortion access legislation, Roe v. Wade, in the U.S. Yeah, excellent. I'm really excited to hear about that because I think there's been a sort of ripple around the world, um, but not so much uh, concerted discussion about our, our own access in, in places that aren't the states. 
Um, and after that, we're going to be joined by Anastasia from Legal Observers New South Wales to evaluate some of the early impacts of New South Wales Roads and Cl- uh, Crimes Legislation Amendment Act 2022, which you spoke about earlier this year, just before it was, uh, sorry, just after it was passed, uh, considering the concerning crackdowns by New South Wales police on Blockade Australia's climate justice direct actions and organising over the past two weeks. And we'll discuss how this fits into a wider legislative push across other Australian states, including, for example, the Victorian government's proposal to impose harsh penalties for forest protesters. And finally, we're going to be joined by Mia Bo, who is a very dear friend of mine and a very special artist. Um, so Mia is a painter from Brisbane with Bochala and Burmese ancestry. The inheritance and disinheritance of both of these cultures focus her work. Mia's paintings respond, sometimes obliquely, to empires, with a capital E, deliberate violent interferences with the cultural heritages of Burma and Gurry, also known as Fraser Island. Mia is a studio resident at Gertrude Contemporary in Preston and is currently showing her work at Penny Contemporary alongside Katie Eraser. How exciting. And it's also going to be a live studio interview. Very, very exciting. Um, I think we haven't had one in a while, and I feel like listeners always really appreciate how excellent live studio interviews sound. So looking forward to it. We might just jump into a little community service announcement, letting you guys know that Radiothon is still going for another day. End of financial year coming up. Donate and nominate Thursday Breakfast, and we'll jump into that now. FreeCR Radiothon 2022. 3CR. Keep community strong. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser. June 2022. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep community strong. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to jump into the news headlines today for Thursday, the 30th of June. Now, tens of thousands of people supporting abortion and reproductive rights are expected to protest across the country this weekend in solidarity with people in the United States who are now facing abortion bans in many states. The protests also have a local focus advocating to expand access to safe abortion in Australia. Advocates are calling for more publicly run health clinics and bulk billing for abortion procedures, especially in working class and regional communities who face disproportionate barriers to access. The NARM Melbourne demonstration will take place at 12 p.m. on the 2nd of July at the State Library. So that's this Saturday, the 2nd of July at 12 p.m. outside Victoria's State Library. In other news... Data from the most recent census released this week has revealed that there are more than one million vacant properties across the country, enough to house the 110,000 people currently on the waiting list for public housing. In the last year, median rent prices increased by 8.7%, while wages rose by 2.1%. The recently released property data reveals that claims by governments that demand is driving rental prices up is false. The renter and housing union, Rahu, who we will be talking with in more detail later in the program, says that the rental crisis is manufactured by a lack of national policy regulating unchecked landlordism. Also in headlines, the Transport Workers Union members have seen progress this month 
following the signing of a statement of principle with one of the largest gig economy delivery and rideshare companies. The statement supports greater worker protections for delivery and rideshare platform workers, including supporting industry-wide standards of a guaranteed minimum wage, dispute resolution mechanisms and voices for workers. The Federal Government has this week signalled their intention to legislate to give the Fair Work Commission new powers to set minimum standards for gig workers. And finally, in news headlines, nearly 700 civil society organisations from Australia and around the world have called for the Australian government to denounce the Myanmar military junta. The open letter urges action against military officials and seeks acknowledgement from Australia's Foreign Affairs Minister and from the Association of Southeast Asian Nations that the military junta is threatening democratic freedoms in Myanmar. Reports show that since the military seized control of Myanmar in February last year, more than 2,000 people have been killed and more than 14,000 people have been arrested by the junta. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 30th of June, and you're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Do we have anything else that we wanted to add to those? Yes. I just wanted to follow up on my interview with Blockade Australia last week, um, as they have been further protests and uh, police have actually recently you know swarmed (laughs) peaceful gathering um, sites they've been pulling people off bicycles pushing people to the ground and continuing their demonstration of violence and intimidation towards climate activists and as we can see as um, in a lot of the legislation and the bail conditions as we discussed last week they are seem to be specifically targeted to climate activists and I think it's important to keep following up with Blockade Australia and um, keep informed um, because it seems that this is continuing to be the way of environmental, the crackdown on environmental activism. Yeah, it's really concerning to see, I mean, especially the uh, the imposition of things like you know predictive or preemptive policing where there's the assumption that somebody might commit an offense so we saw a climate justice activist who had been involved in a lock-on action being arrested on the way to Lismore uh, yesterday evening with the, the police assuming that um, you know they might be involved in a further action and it's just yeah really terrifying to see this um, you know this precedent being set and I think you know, it really feels like we're in crisis times. I wanted to remind people that action is still possible, organizing is still possible, and something, a little something that I've been drawing a bit of inspiration from is this absolute gun trade unionist in the uh, in the UK, Mick Lynch, who is the secretary of the general secretary of the National Union of Rail, Maritime, and Transport Workers, or the RMT Union, who's just absolutely just been a completely normal, reasonable guy fighting for better working conditions, fighting against pay cuts to the whole ecosystem of workers that keep um, you know keep London's rails online, um, and. It's just been really exciting to see what clear, uh, clear mass action 
with a clear set of demands has been able to achieve in terms of totally stymieing, you know, the mainstream media class, but also the political class. And I think there's so much potential for that kind of action. We see it with the NTEU here with, you know, the push for a new NTEU. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing teachers strikes. We're seeing various healthcare workers strikes. Um, and as we spoke about transport workers union as well, pushing for better conditions. So, uh, this is a reminder that even though things feel really dire, there's always possibility for collective action. And I think that is the direction um, of our liberation. So without um, going into any more rambling on my end, we might jump into a little promotion for Beyond the Bars because that is going to be coming up uh, in NADOC week 2022. So uh, the start of July. Get up, stand up. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Beyond the Bars started in 2002, and this year marks 21 years on air. So tune in at 11am each day during NADOC, from Monday the 4th of July to Friday the 8th of July for the Beyond the Bars 2022 broadcasts. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyondthebars. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to be playing a little bonus segment. I say bonus because this isn't going to make it into the live broadcast, but it will be included in the podcast version. That's right. I gave myself enough time to edit. Um, from the upcoming episode of 3CR's Women on the Line program, which features Catherine Gledhill-Tucker, who's a technologist and digital rights activist serving on the board of Electronic Frontiers Australia, and Samantha Floriani, who's a digital rights activist and writer currently working as program lead for Digital Rights Watch. And they're going to be talking about... Uh, queerness and digital spaces within a broader conversation about digital rights and the possibilities and pitfalls of regulation. So just a reminder that you can catch this full conversation um, on 3CR on Monday, the 4th of July from 8.30 to 9 a.m. But without further ado, let's jump into that segment. I was also, yeah, wondering if maybe both of you could speak to questions around digital spaces and the sort of push-pull factors around queer liberation and constraint and these sort of Puritan politics that are being applied to uh, queer people's navigation of online spaces. So I think content moderation and governance is a really key example of this. This is something that comes up again and again when we talk about online safety, or at least the current sort of narrative of online safety. And so content moderation, by its very nature, is something that seeks to apply blanket standards across a huge range of people. And it is something that is political. It is something that's based in ideological ideas of morality, decency, and upholding the status quo. And I think what this ends up meaning is that it essentially acts as a systematic sanitization of queerness and really an expulsion of queerness from like the digital imaginary because queerness by its very nature is, is not going to conform to the norm. 
So last year, Digital Rats Watch hosted this panel, um, and it was kind of all about this, and one of the speakers was Joshua Badge, and they said something that really struck me and has stayed with me and, like, lingered in my mind since then. They said that attempts to moderate queer art, expression, and culture is a kind of sinister de-queering of queerness, and I think that that is such a spot-on reflection of how this not just in online spaces, but I think because of the nature of online spaces, it's at such a grand scale that the impacts and the flow and effects of trying to moderate content upon queer people in particular have very real flow and effects into the, the physical world, you know, into meat space. And I think it presents this really fundamental challenging idea in that these spaces by design force assimilation into dominant norms and culture. Uh, you know, we shouldn't have to change ourselves to fit into whatever Instagram thinks the community standards are. You know, we have our own norms and culture and practices, and yet we are kind of forced to. And it also means that, you know, not just through content moderation, but also through things like amplification algorithms and engagement algorithms, we are essentially, I mean, not everybody, I'm sure some people are very good at resisting this, but in a general sense, we're essentially being trained to converge to the middle, to, to the average, um, you know, through this process of like self-optimization for air quotes, success online, which usually means like likes and shares and comments. And I find it fascinating how that, yeah, it kind of pushes us all to, towards this middle point rather than what was kind of promised on the on the internet of, of it being like this huge diversity of voices and everyone can have a space and whatever. And to be clear, I think that also exists. I'm talking specifically more of the, the mainstream, like dominant social media platforms. But in terms of the impact on, on queerness, I think that that's really kind of fascinating. But, and I'll wrap this up really shortly because I know that I'm going on a bit of a rant, but of the same token, Online spaces play a huge role in a lot of queer people's lives to be able to find community, to be able to access um, vital health information, to be able to explore their identities, to be able to, you know, meet like-minded people and, and, and whatnot. And that's really, really important when we're talking about online safety to protect that and to uphold that. I'm deeply concerned that the current political vision for online safety in Australia, but also internationally, does come back to these ideas of content moderation and, you know, very surveillance-based punitive approaches to um, what is considered to be safety. You know, the problem is that these things actually, in, you know, end up undermining our collective and individual safety, specifically for, for groups who are already marginalised. I'll build a bit on what Sam said uh, and say I, I don't think we can neatly separate you know, online spaces and digital spaces from other, you know, real, real world spaces anymore. I think if platforms are designed in a way to restrict access or really deny access for people from queer backgrounds or other, you know, non like heteronormative backgrounds, you're really denying people access to society and uh, access to these really vital spaces and creating harm in very real ways that aren't just about uh, denying you know, access to, to a digital community. And, oh, yeah, that that quote from Joshua Badge actually really stuck with me as well. I remember that event that you held a little, a little while ago. I think that's 
uh, such a poignant point. And um, Sam and myself and a couple of other friends contributed to a piece in Junkie a little while ago too, and I reflected a lot on the very similar shared experiences a lot of us had growing up in perhaps like, uh, you know, small towns or families that weren't ready to be supportive of our queer selves or our queer identities or we were in spaces where we weren't able to explore those identities at a young age and digital spaces and digital platforms really gave us those opportunities and that was such a vital part of our experiences as human beings and they those experiences need to be protected I also think it's just so bold of these platforms to deny the value that queer people bring to those spaces and the kind of like content and culture that comes from queerness and people of colour and other marginalised identities. Like that's where culture comes from and we really need to pay credit to that. I, I mean, think about, you know, what happened to Tumblr post the demonification of female presenting nipples. Like it died. <laughs> uh, and the same thing I'm sure will happen to other platforms if they crack down too hard and go down too hard this like path of content moderation and really like puritanical ideologies. You're going to sanitize to the point that culture is dead. <laughs> That is a beautiful way to put it, and it is this really fine line that tech companies appear to be trying to walk where they are simultaneously mining culture from communities, you know, especially black communities, to gain clicks and views, but at the same time, you know, reporting and moderating away black lives from the internet. And like particularly black queer lives. And it's just, yeah, it just seems so self-defeating when we're analyzing it in this space, but so predatory at the same time. And I think that's why um, this, this really, it really comes back to the importance of considering digital rights within this broader framework of human rights rather than abstracting it away uh, to be, you know, considered separately. Um, so thank you both so much for this discussion. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, where we have been having a behind-the-scenes argument about who is the real DJ. It is Inez. It's a, Inez is the real DJ. I haven't turned Inez's mic on to uh, to, to snap back at me because, uh, quite frankly, I don't want to hear it. Anyway, you've just... Uh, heard a bonus segment from the upcoming episode of 3CR's Women on the Line program featuring Catherine Gledhill-Tucker and Samantha Floriani discussing digital rights and the possibilities and pitfalls of regulation, but here specifically talking about queerness and digital spaces. And this forms part of a broader conversation that will air on 3CR on Monday, the 4th of July from 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR 855 a.m. and online at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And there is an article that uh, that Kat referred to uh, about queer online spaces and government regulation that both Kat and Sam and some uh, co-contributors collaborated with to produce. And they referred to that during the clip and we'll be putting a link in the show notes to that article. 
Inez, would you like me to throw to you so that we can announce the next song? Well, 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 what do we have here? Is my <laughs> mic on now? Um, no, it's fine. Everybody can play whatever songs they like. And um, However, in this instance, I'm going to play the song that I want, which is called <laughs> um, Ash Warriors uh, Biryani. Incredible. I'm excited for some masala in the morning. Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Beyond the Bars started in 2002, and this year marks 21 years on air. So tune in at 11am each day during NAIDOC, from Monday the 4th of July to Friday the 8th of July for the Beyond the Bars 2022 broadcasts. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars.
Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And just before you heard the song Biryani by Ashwarya, uh, reminding people that this was a recommendation by our resident DJ Inez. And uh, we're going into our first live interview for today with Alex from the Renters and Housing Union, or Rahu, who joins us to unpack some of the key insights around housing availability and affordability from the recently released 2021 census data, as well as in a report published this week by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, highlighting rising rental stress and a lack of public housing availability in Australia. And I'm really excited to hear as well about Rahu's recommendations for a response from government. So, Alex, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Priya. Yeah, absolutely. Um, really uh, interested in talking about this because, I mean, you know, we've been covering issues of uh, housing affordability, availability and crisis uh, for so long and looking at this situation get more dire, um, you know, over you know, since the beginning of the pandemic. And I feel like uh, the release of this most recent census data earlier this week paints a pretty dismal picture of the gulf between housing stock and housing affordability um, because there are over 298,000 empty dwellings in Victoria at the same time as Rahu is reporting over 110,000 people on the public housing waiting list, not to mention the number of renters that are suffering through a historically cold June in unlivable properties. So can you take us through some of the reasons we've gotten to this point and also some of the key insights from the census data for renters? Absolutely. And it's important to note that not just in Victoria, but that figure of empty dwellings is over a million nationally as well. So the same problems are being replicated in different states to varying degrees of severity as well. But broadly, like we've arrived at this point because of the way successive governments um, and Australian culture treats Property is a modality of accumulating and holding wealth. Um, most of the previous governments have been terrified of doing anything that will lower house prices or anything to do with addressing rent. Um, and you mentioned it yourself, like in the last year, we've seen median rents across the country go up by around 9% and wages are basically stagnant. So this is pushing more and more people into <clears throat> vulnerability in relation to their, their housing needs and their needs for shelter, pushing people onto the social housing lists in different states, um, but we've seen historically a bit of a failure of uh, state governments especially to build the requisite amount of social housing. Uh, so people are moving from the private mar- rental market, which is increasingly too expensive, uh, onto the social housing list, but the amount of social housing hasn't kept up. While that's going on, there's a cultural retreat from the idea of public housing. Um, we see more and more community housing providers uh, providing services that used to be provided by public housing. Um, in terms of other insights for renters from the census, one of the biggest ones is the growing amount of renters. Um, 
there was almost 3 million rental households in the 2021 census, and that's almost 30% of the population. So there's a cultural change going uh, going at the moment where more and more renters are forming a much bigger political bloc, uh, and they'll have ramifications for both state and federal politics in the future. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I... I feel like, you know, as a, as a young is, oh gosh, you know what? Let's not go into that person living, living <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah, living in so-called Melbourne. Uh, the majority of people that I know and associate with are renters. I'm a renter and, um, it definitely affects the way that I think about, um, think about where my vote goes. Um, now, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare also released a recent report which clearly highlight, highlighted that the demand for housing stock across the country has far outstripped supply. And you touched on this earlier with the sort of shift uh, from uh, with people who had been renters also being pushed out of the rental market because of those prohibitive costs and moving on to the public housing list. Now, can you tell us a bit about that shift or stagnation in relative levels of housing stock between community and public housing, which co- fall under the broader umbrella of social housing in Australia and in Victoria? And how's that big housing build going? Yeah, um, so I guess just an important thing to highlight, and, and you touched on it just then, is about the difference between community and public housing. So public housing is obviously owned by the state government, um, and your rent is capped at 25% of your income. So that's any income regardless, including Centrelink. Community housing is managed and owned by not-for-profit organisations, and those not-for-profit organisations uh, can cap your rent at 30%, but it doesn't necessarily have to be <clears throat> Centrelink, there's less security of tenure. Um, <clears throat> housing, community housing residents can be evicted. Uh, the quality of the housing itself can vary. Um, and Riley's position has always been that the new housing should be public. So with the big build itself, it's focused on community housing. And as the report you mentioned shows, the numbers have stalled. And we... Since 2014, we've actually only seen a very, very small increase in the number of social housing um, dwellings in Victoria. It's around 80,000, um, and it hasn't kept pace with the growth of the number of people needing social housing. Um, if we had been keeping pace with the need, we'd actually need to build five times the amount of social housing dwellings in Victoria alone to um, keep pace. In terms of the reason, um, it's, it's very hard to, to say exactly why it's, it's stalling. Um, the last two years obviously haven't helped, um, but yeah, it's, the key message really is that it's, it's not really going anywhere. Mm. Yeah, and it, I mean, it is just really jarring to see that um, the the level of uh, unoccupied uh, houses at the moment, and just you know the the severe need for housing um, by so many people, and you know. I think we've spoken on this program before about options such as the government buying up available housing, like empty houses uh, to house people as as one possible solution. Um, Now, I wanted to go further into that issue of rental vacancies and Rahu's assessment that Australia's rental crisis has been created through a privileging of property accumulation by the wealthy over a commitment to housing affordability and access so how do government priorities at the federal level need to shift on housing, but also in other areas that are related to housing security, such as social security? Yeah, I, uh, it, it's interesting. And I think, like, a lot of people have picked up on the most recent federal election 
um, one of the pieces of messaging that Albanese specifically used was around him growing up in public housing. You know, you have a deadline every single day um, about the social mobility and the security of tenancy that he had when he was growing up and being proud of being someone who was, who was from public housing, which is something that successive federal governments have not really invested in at all. And Rahu's position is that we need a national strategy on renting, um, and that includes all types of renting, both the private market, public and social housing as well. Um, we need to keep rents affordable, um, so putting rent caps in, in relation to income. We need to have longer leases for tenure security for people, so people not being evicted after a year, not being kept on month-to-month contracts. Um, and we need to have minimum standards for livability in rentals. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, in Melbourne, we've gone through what well, we're still in. It's really cold right now. An incredibly cold winter. Um, despite the fact we do have minimum standards here, often they're not really met. So houses have to have heating, but only in the main living room. So we will be looking for a national strategy on renting that kind of covers those sort of things. It would also cover... Um, increasing social security payments to at least the level they were during the pandemic to ensure that people are not sacrificing their basic needs, such as food or um, <clears throat> education, things like that, in in place of shelter. Yeah, I mean, and that last bit that you touched on is, is so important because when we look at the proportions of people's income that they are spending on their rent, you know, it is, it's ridiculous. Like, I think the ideal is supposed to be, what is it, below 30%? Mm-hmm. Um, but people are spending, you know, over 50% of their income just to, just to cover their rental costs. And, and as you said, that means that people are having to dip into budgets for food, for essential medications, for other things. Um, just to be able to keep a roof over their heads. So uh, mm. absolutely take that point that access to housing shouldn't be a sort of like zero-sum equation with the other things that you need to survive. Um, so we're also coming up to uh, state elections in Victoria later this year, and I was wondering if you could give us some pointers about what renting voters might be asking for from candidates on the issue of housing affordability. Yeah, so... Um a little background into to Rahu. We're a member-run organisation which consists of renters and people in, in um, precarious housing. And one of the biggest issues that comes up in our work um, supporting our members is around accountability for real estate agents um, and landlords. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, the majority of probably both of our social circles are our renters and everyone has a horror story about, a, you know, a repair in their house, not getting their bond back, um, that speaks to the gulf of power, the, the power imbalance between real estate agents and renters. And a lot of that is because renters feel like, oh, sorry, real estate agents feel they can get away with um, pretty egregious behaviour. Um, so we'd be looking for accountability standards for, for um, real estate agents, so real... Um, legislative action that can take place against people who are consistently breaching standards. Um, we'd also want to see an improvement of uh, the minimum standards that came into Victoria last <clears throat> last year. Um, so to give you an example, at the moment, as I mentioned, obviously heating is a minimum standard, but we would want to include um, things like air conditioning as well, <clears throat> stronger definitions around what constitutes a, an urgent repair, um, 
we'd also be looking for uh, similar stuff to what I mentioned in the national housing strategy. So looking to um, cap rent as income, um, looking to find ways to keep rent increases to minimum um, some degree of accountability around rental spend, uh, rental increases as well. And as I mentioned, increasing the number of public housing being built as part of the big build. Mm. Yeah, and I think these are all really excellent proposals that people should be keeping an eye on if, you know, their local candidates are uh, are taking heed of these concerns and, and pushing our local candidates on that as well to, to be um, to be considering these issues front and centre in the lead up to the Victorian state elections. Uh, now, where can people find out more about Rahu's work and get involved? Sure. So uh, we are... On internet, uh, bravo.org.au, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Um, the best way to get involved is to come to one of our local branch meetings. So we have local branches um, in each part of the city. So if you're to email or get in contact with us on our social media, we can point you in the direction of one of your local branch meetings um, and you can come down and get involved in <clears throat> the work that we do. Brilliant. And is there anything else you wanted to share with us before we wrap up? No, just uh, get involved and stand up for your renting rights. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for all of the work that you and Rahu do to uh, empower people to, you know, fight for their renting rights and also equip people to go through some of those horrible processes such as uh, taking our landlords to VCAT, fighting against the uh, ongoing creep of mold and uh, so on and so forth. So thank you so much, Alex, for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks, Freya. Have a good day. You too. And that was Alex from Rahu, the Renters and Housing Union, who spoke with us about some of the key insights around housing availability and affordability from the recently released 2021 census data, as well as in a report published this week by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, which highlights rising rental stress and a lack of public housing availability in Australia. We also touched on Rahu's recommendations for a response from the new federal government, which includes the need for a comprehensive national housing strategy. And we'll have links to that in the show notes so you can read the full media release from earlier this week. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Hi, I'm John Harding. Happy NAIDOC Week, everybody. I want you all to join me for a special presentation, NAIDOC Saturday, the 9th of July, a radio adaptation of The Dirty Mile, a play I wrote in conjunction with Gary Foley and Kylie Bowling. It's a walk down Koori Fitzroy. Come and listen to the history, the characters, the events, the organisations and the people who made up the community of the Fitzroy Blacks. Grab a cuppa, put your feet up, have a laugh, a cry and a walk down Dirty Gertie, Gertrude Street, with me and my friends. The Dirty Mile is being broadcast NAIDOC Saturday, 5.30pm, 9th of July. 
on the Let Your Freak Flag Fly show. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. And now we are joined by Laura Riccardi, who's a health promotion officer at the Women's Health in South East or WISE. And she is the project lead on the regional strategy to improve sexual and reproductive health and has been activist for reproductive rights for many years. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Laura. Good morning, Ines. Thank you for having me. Well, I know it's a very important uh, conversation. And yeah, so I just want to thank you for your time as well. And just to give a little bit of context about what has been happening, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners are aware, is there has been the recent news of the landmark abortion access and privacy legislation, Roe v. Wade in the U.S. being overturned. And I know many people in Australia are also concerned about reproductive rights and justice. And access to sexual and reproductive health care, including abortion, obviously is central to rights and autonomy. And criminalising abortion forces pregnant people to have unsafe abortions unwanted and unviable pregnancies carried to full term, widens the inequality gap and increases the likelihood of entering the criminal justice system. Um, And what some people may not know as well is that abortion definitely has been decriminalised nationally across Australia, but uh, starting with Western Australia in 1998 and South Australia only in 2021, which was only last year, which is pretty surprising. (laughs) Um, Would you mind maybe speaking on the legislative context that currently exists across Australia in regard to abortion? Absolutely. So fortunately in Australia, abortion is legal and a very commonplace medical procedure that up to one in four women and people with a uterus will access in their lifetime. But the legislative context does vary across different states and territories, as you've noted. Um, So in Victoria, it was decriminalised in 2008. And depending on the period of gestation or how long someone's been pregnant, women have a choice of accessing either a medical abortion via prescription medication, um, up to nine weeks of gestation, or a surgical abortion um, where the contents of the uterus are removed um, using a small suction or curettage up to 24 weeks of gestation, Um, and under exceptional circumstances beyond this. However, as you noted, um, you know, in a global context, it is sort of surprisingly uh, delayed, I suppose. Um, I was interested to note that in the UK, the Abortion Act was passed in 1967, which allowed abortions up to 28 weeks then. Yeah, so that definitely shows that, you know, it's not equal across the world and they are easily you know it's very difficult to to fight for that and fight for the reproductive rights um but they can be so so easily lost and i think that's why it's really disheartening to see what's happening in the u.s and truly and a lot of us return to gilead or something yeah and (laughs) uh, i know that you know there are lots of barriers to accessing uh abortion despite you know the legislation that we have and that can be anything from you know location um, financial costs medicare and visa status um, and language barriers so 
there are <laughs> there are so many barriers, and we'll speak to some of um, the other ones later on in the interview. But would you mind speaking on, I guess, what what are the most common barriers to accessing an abortion in Australia that you see in your work? Yeah, I think um, it's really important that you note that because even though abortion is decriminalised or legal, it means very little unless you provide meaningful access for all women and people with a uterus. And as you noted, one of the major barriers to accessing an abortion is cost. So despite it being legal, um, the cost of an abortion can be prohibitive, and it varies, again, depending on the type of abortion and the gestational period, but um, for Medicare card holders, which does, you know, exclude international students and people on certain types of visas, a surgical abortion can cost upwards of $600, um, and a medical abortion can cost between two to $500. Um, I, I suppose another major barrier is the availability of providers. Um, so for people living in rural and regional areas, they're really... Um, quite limited and are often forced to travel to uh, metropolitan areas in order to access an abortion because there just aren't enough services to meet the demand. Yeah, and, you know, those barriers are, are definitely exponentially, I think, intensified when the person who is seeking the abortion um, may face these barriers but is also historically excluded from sexual and health systems particularly queer, trans, intersex, disabled, and or First Nation folks. And I think when we disregard the experiences of these communities and these intersections, we are essentially erasing their experiences and deepening barriers to care because this is not just a woman's rights issue, and I think it's very important for everybody to note that as well. Uh, I guess for you and your work, I, I'm sure you come across this as well, but what does trauma-informed reproductive um, inclusive abortion access actually look like day-to-day? -day. Yeah, well, as you note, Inez, the experiences of discrimination on the basis of um, sexual or gender identity, cultural or ethnic background, disability, socioeconomic status, etc., all compound and magnify barriers to accessing equitable health care. And I think in order to provide services that are truly inclusive, First and foremost, the healthcare system needs to recognise and understand that these intersections are social determinants of health outcomes and inform the quality of care that people are able to access. And then I think there are several um, steps that the system can take in order to ensure services are fit for purpose. And for some, this may involve providing interpreters to ensure that um, people whose um, first language is not English, you're able to access that service, um, ensuring that services are accessible via public transport and for people using wheelchairs and mobility aids, um, not assuming someone's gender identity and using their preferred pr pronouns because, um, as you can imagine, um, having to seek an abortion for a trans and non-binary person may be um, a an experience that doesn't affirm their gender identity um, or any number of practices really that can demonstrate a commitment to equitable care. Yeah, I think it's very um, important that you illuminated the different ways in that can be really challenging and also, 
yeah, challenging not just for in terms of access, financial cost, or but also in terms of identity and you know how difficult it can be to constantly go through every single point of medical contact, whether that be from the receptionist to the person that gives you your results, or um, you know to everybody that you have to actually physically see before, during, and after you get one. Um, it, it can be really disheartening if every single point of that is faced with, you know, discrimination. And, um, yeah, I just want to thank you for illuminating to those points. And I think also following from the question of access, um, teleabortion is a recent development in the delivery of medical abortion care. And I know, I believe, well, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's via telehealth consult. You can seek abortion care under nine weeks, I believe. Um, yeah, could you speak to why, what, what exactly this involves and why it's so important? Yeah, well, I suppose um, if there is a silver lining of COVID, and I'm not sure that there is, um, but it has certainly meant that telehealth um, has become much more widely employed and used, um, both by the system and, and people who access healthcare. And um, it's particularly critical to abortion provision because it allows access for women who may otherwise have difficulty getting to a physical clinic, such as women living in uh, rural and regional um, communities. Um, so medical abortion um, is, as I alluded to earlier, um, the one where you take um, two medications in order to... Um, terminate the pregnancy rather than a, a surgical procedure. And basically when this is performed by a telehealth, you don't need to visit a clinic. Um, you only need to have an ultrasound um, performed to date the pregnancy. And then you can have a consultation over the phone with a doctor who's received the requisite training. Um, and your medications, which are known as MS2 steps, will be couriered um, directly to you, just like Uber Eats or whatever. Um, and um, you can then take the, the medication according to the instructions in the privacy of your own home and you'll have access to nurse aftercare services um, to manage any pain or discomfort. And um, for anyone who's sort of wondering whether um, they're eligible or um, is perhaps in a situation where they're wishing to seek an abortion, I would encourage them to contact 1-800-MY-OPTIONS um, to find their, their nearest provider. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, knowing that there is an option for telehealth care um, in that specific circumstance is really important um, for anybody seeking an abortion. Um, can I just ask, though, when do people typically find out that they are actually pregnant because nine weeks um, seems to be still quite a short amount of time and from what I was reading and gathering a lot of people don't really you know first find out um, or start showing some symptoms between like four to eight weeks. Yeah you're absolutely right in this so obviously um, people need to realize that they've missed a period um, that's usually the first um, sign of pregnancy and that won't usually happen until after the sort of four week or 28 day um, mark but um, it can take for various reasons people a little while to realize that um, they might be pregnant so that could be you know up to eight weeks and and beyond 
um, in which case a medical abortion may not be the viable option for them, um, but they are still legally and medically able to access a, a surgical abortion, um, which is also an extremely safe and commonplace procedure. Um, and again, 1-800-MY-OPTIONS will be able to direct people to um, their nearest um, provider. But I think it is very important that women and people have access to, to both options, both medical and surgical um, abortion options in services that are located um, near them. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, knowing that there are options available um, throughout the the pregnancy and abortion is healthcare, and I don't think um, there needs to be a significant uh, reason as to why somebody would want one. If they just don't want one, uh, if they just want one, that's fine. Um, I, I think what I also want to touch on is, I guess, the role of stigma that plays in accessing an abortion, um, also like talking about it, but also working in the area. Would you mind just briefly touching on what role stigma plays? Yeah, well, um, in my role at Women's Health in the Southeast or WISE, um, I'm really well supported um, to deal with any resistance or backlash that I might encounter. Um, but I think in general, even though abortion can be obviously a really polarising political issue, surveys have shown that the majority of Australians, it's at least 76%, and in some instances up to 87%, consistently support abortion rights. Um, and I think that's why there's been such an eruption of shock and anger um, at the response to you know, Roe v. Wade um, in the United States. And this isn't to deny that it can still be a stigmatised or taboo issue, um, but to note that there is popular support in favour of abortion um, and um, that I, I think this is because the majority of people understand the critical role that abortion and reproductive health care plays in supporting um equitable health outcomes, but also gender equality for women. You know, it's impossible, I think, to imagine true gender equality without women having full reproductive control. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess just for the the last question, um, given the news, you know, of Roe v. Wade and, you know, there's lots of questions on how to protect these rights, um, is there anything or actions or steps that you would like our listeners to take to I guess, support abortion access and reproductive justice? Yeah, I think, I mean, for listeners who are working within the healthcare system, I think the onus really is on us to defend and expand abortion provision. And ultimately, I think true reproductive justice requires universal free abortion available on demand. Um, but short of this, I think expanding the availability of provision through public hospitals and community health um, particularly in regional and rural communities, is really important. Yep. Um, I think for listeners in the community, this means being aware of your rights um, and your power as an advocate for a, an abortion. Um, I think, you know, with one in four women procuring an abortion in their lifetime, um, you will either require this service or you know someone who will. So be aware of your rights. Know that you have a legal and a human right to access abortion that's protected in Australia. Um, make others aware of this right too. And I think um, in the immediate sense, 
you know, join people at the rallies happening this weekend in solidarity with abortion seekers in the United States. Yep. Um, for those in Melbourne or Nam, there's one on Saturday at 12 p.m. at the State Library yep. um, being organised by my dear friend Liz Walsh, and I'd encourage people to go down. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Laura. I uh, hope you have a good day. Thanks for joining us here today. You too. Thanks, Inez. Take care. Bye. So you've just heard from Laura Riccardi, who is a health promotion officer at WISE. They spoke about abortion access, barriers to care and stigma. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and I have some, I think, breaking news. Um, Singer R. Kelly has been sentenced to 30 years in federal prison uh, after being charged with, uh, I believe, racketeering and sex trafficking. So that is, um, Singer R. Kelly has been charged uh, and sentenced to 30 years in federal prison in the United States. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are about to go into our next interview. And this is with Anastasia from Legal Observers New South Wales, who's joining us to evaluate some of the early impacts of the New South Wales Roads and Crimes Legislation Amendment Act 2022, considering the concerning crackdowns by New South Wales Police on Blockade Australia's climate justice direct actions and organising over the past few weeks. Anastasia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Peter. And um, we'll just... I guess, jump into it. Um, When we spoke to you last, it was just after the Roads and Crimes Legislation Amendment Bill passed in in the New South Wales Legislative Council. So at the time, Legal Observers New South Wales was one of a range of organisations and unions that raised some serious concerns about the potential of the bill to undermine the freedom of expression and assembly of, uh, in particular, climate justice activists. And we've now seen some extremely concerning examples of draconian punishments and fines being slapped on Blockade Australia protesters in New South Wales after actions this week and a terrifying police raid last week. So can you give us a bit of a recap of what's been happening here and how it intersects with this new act? And it'd be really good to hear your unique perspective on this as a legal observer. Yeah, so we've seen um, about 20, 25 people so far from Blockade Australia charged under the new legislation um, over the last two days of protests, but actually also um, coming out of the raid last Sunday, um, one person was actually charged with conspiring to commit the crime of obstructing on a road, which was a somewhat concerning development because, of course, if police are using legislation in that way, it's very difficult 
um, to draw the line between, you know, anyone who's preparing for a protest could potentially obstruct a road um, or get in the way of pedestrians trying to use a railway station, which is also covered under legislation. Um, so that's been particularly concerning to witness. And then also the policing um, of these laws has been interesting. It's been quite inconsistent in the sense that it seems that uh, police are very much using them uh, as a carte blanche to target specific groups they don't like or the state doesn't like and then choosing not to use them in other circumstances. So, for example, we, um, Legal Observers of South Wales and the Maritime Union uh, of Australia, we had a protest march on May Day, um, where we marched up from the Maritime Union of Australian office to Town Hall, and we actually broke, you know, we broke the new law, we marched up the road, we didn't have a Form 1 or anything like that, um, and police sort of just saw us coming and led us onto the footpath and didn't really pursue it, um, whereas on Monday and Tuesday this week with Blockade Australia, um, they sort of spent some of the time essentially marshalling the protesters on the road and then in the last maybe five minutes of the march decided that they needed to fulfil the arrest quota or whatever it is and mapped about 10 people um, each time. So I think it's concerning that we're seeing the laws used in this kind of um, highly inconsistent discretionary way in order to seemingly not in response to the level of obstruction but in, in response to the level to which the group is not um, politically well liked by the New South Wales government. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it seems like fairly arbitrary the way that it's been um, applied from, from what you've described there, where, you know, some people who are engaged in more direct and disruptive action um, are, you know, are subject to, uh, yeah, harsher harsher penalties, even though, you know, there might be technically the ability to crack down, which I'm not saying is a good thing, definitely. Um, but, yeah, I think this also um, leads into a question where we've seen New South Wales uh, police impose bail conditions on at least one Blockade Australia activist after last week's raid, which prohibited the use of encrypted communication apps, including WhatsApp and Signal, and other members of Blockade Australia have been forced to hand over communication devices and passcodes. Now, can you speak to the sort of multiple spheres, both physical and digital, across which activists are facing increased risk of rights of violations and, you know, the possibility for scrutiny and um, contesting these rights violations? Conditions in the digital realm. I mean, we haven't seen these kinds of conditions imposed on activists before um, in terms of things like not using encrypted apps. The only time I could find that that's been used in New South Wales is for somebody in a domestic violence case um, for the perpetrator to not contact um, the survivor there. So it's really concerning that we're seeing it now bleed over into into activists' um, bail conditions. And the part of the conditions is actually that they have to produce their passwords on demand at any time um, to police and details of their mobile phone subscription. So obviously there's huge capacity there for intrusions into privacy, um, into, you know, private messaging. And it also speaks to the fact that if, if there is a ban on using encrypted uh, communications, that kind of suggests that there is already a surveillance of the non-encrypted communications. And what the police are trying to do is, is to um, increase their realm of surveillance to 100%. Um, so it really raises some questions about what does the back end of this surveillance look like um, in the sense that we haven't 
even seen or heard word of any kind of warrant um, for the surveillance activities that the police were carrying out for three days prior to the raid last Sunday for the filming that they were doing of protesters potentially on private property um, for the extensive notes they were keeping for the fact they had who knows how many covert surveillance operatives uh, in the area, um, none of which was ever communicated to any of the property owners in the surrounding area. So again, we just just don't know how they're justifying the surveillance and what kind of uh, legal oversight there is over the granting of any of these kinds of warrants. Um, because we don't know whether the warrants exist. Mm. Um, and we're also seeing police play quite fast and loose with things like, um, you know, there was a search the other day where a person, a person was searched near a location that was suspected to be connected to BA, and police took her phone and tried to enter a couple of passcodes into it and then gave it back, which is which is very obviously they have no power to do that. But but the kind of environment that's been created with these new laws of the hysteria around Blockade Australia, um, they feel very justified in sort of pushing that on a lot of people have been followed by uh frequently pull them over for a quote unquote random breath test um when they're leaving the police station, for example, picking someone up. Um just all kinds of yeah, quite intense um covert surveillance that I think that we should be concerned about challenge these bails court we can, you know, bring the magistrate and ask him or her to justify whether these are, you know, um allowable legally, mm. there's very little that we can do when it comes to, to police surveillance on a broader level. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just, um, we were just getting a bit of interference or a, a crackle on your line, so ho- hopefully that's resolved um, by the time I, by the time I ask the next question. But um, we've also, yeah, seen organizations like Digital Rights Watch put out statements um, raising concerns about the implications of this kind of surveillance. And I, and I do wonder about the issues that it raises in relation to things like the Privacy Act and the uh, regulations that we have at the moment around people's um, online safety and surveillance in terms of um, their access to privacy. Um, now, I was just wondering if you could briefly sort of touch on the way that this, like, politics of respectability is being imposed through acts like the one in New South Wales with bipartisan support to kind of coerce organizers that are involved in various movements to demonstrate in state-sanctioned ways rather than being quote-unquote disruptive and what some of the implications are of uh, attempting to legislatively cut direct action out of protesters' toolkits. Sure, yeah. Well, it's it's somewhat subtle the way this actually bleeds into the practical reality of protest organizing. I mean, we've seen once the new laws were passed, for example, with the May Day demonstrations by the unions, police were using the laws to say, oh, well, we can't block um, any of the light rail that runs through the city. You have to kind of be corralled into this little square where you won't get in the way of any pedestrians because otherwise you'll be in breach of the new laws. Um, and applying that kind of uh, pressure, which unfortunately, you know, NGOs and unions, um, they've, they've been very very good at standing up uh, publicly against these laws and saying, you know, they're not okay. Um, But when it comes to the practical implications, you know, as an NGO, there's a lot of um, risks that you face if you're associated with any kind of criminal activity. Um, And the same goes for unions, which are already facing their own kinds of repression uh, from governments all over Australia and huge fines. Um, And I think that that really uh, impacts the way that these organizations can push back um, against police when they try and uh, really control the way these marches 
uh, take place. And it also makes it more difficult to, um, to grow, you know, mass, mass movements, um, when people are afraid of taking a stand, mm. um, against the police. Um, and I think that the respectability question, yes, yeah, definitely one thing playing out a lot in the media. Um, I think that one positive thing that's come out of all of this is a lot of people have affirmed the fact that all of the rights that we care about, you know, eight-hour workday, um, voting for women, First Nations rights, they've all been won through action that was highly disruptive and uncomfortable and not nice, and that's mm-hmm. actually how they've been won. They weren't won by, you know, um, somebody going to the Prime Minister and asking nicely. So these kinds of politics of respectability, I mean, they're definitely prominent, but I think that people are increasingly seeing um, their structural failure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one positive to draw from this whole experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, now, just very briefly, closer to home, we've also seen a push by the Victorian government to impose harsh forest protest laws that mirror these concerning developments in New South Wales and similar legislations recently be passed in Tasmania as well. Um, so what is your assessment of some of this broader cross-jurisdiction stifling of climate activism just before we wrap up? I mean, I'm inclined to say that, you know, it's the reaction of a state that understands that activism works and is frustrated by the fact that it works and wants to stop it from working. Um, I think that it's interesting seeing in all of that legislation, there's a lot of this emphasis on um, workers' safety and this sense that Tasmanian legislation is about obstructing workers, are causing a serious risk to workers. In Victoria, it's about you know trespassing on certain areas with, again, this idea that forestry workers are at risk. And I think there's a, there is an attempt here, whether it's um, intentional or not, to actually cause a wedge between climate activists and the working class mm-hmm. and to pretend that disruptive action is a risk to workers rather than something that workers and people all over Australia use in order to fight for their rights, um, which is, of course, you know, in the government's interest to create that division. Um, and I think that the best thing we can do is, is to resist that and say that, no, we are, uh, disruptive action is in all of our interests, so let's, you know, get together and push for it collectively. That is an absolutely excellent message to leave us on. Now, Anastasia, thanks so much for joining us. I'll put information about how people can find out more about the work of Legal Observers New South Wales in our show notes and really appreciate you making the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you. And that was Anastasia from Legal Observers New South Wales who joined us to evaluate some of the impacts of the New South Wales Roads and Crimes Legislation Amendment Act considering the concerning crackdowns by New South Wales Police on Blockade Australia's climate justice, direct actions and organising over the past few weeks. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moravan. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And 
we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we have our live guest here. Leela, would you like to introduce? Yes, I'm very excited to introduce Mia Bo, who is a painter from Brisbane with Butchella and Burmese ancestry. Um, Mia, this is my first live studio interview. And I'm honoured that it's with you. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Um, So can you tell me a bit about your work? So you're a visual artist. Can you tell me how art became your full-time career? Because that's a pretty big achievement. Yeah, um, it's happened very quickly. So I studied art history in Brisbane at the University of Queensland Um, and I always sort of thought I'd be a curator Um, Mm. then I realized I kind of hate writing Um, (laughs) and I found it really hard to express myself with words and a lot easier to express myself with painting and visual art Um, and so yeah at the start of the 2020, that fateful year, um, I was about to finish my degree, so I just sort of rented a studio in West End in Brisbane, where I'm from, um, and then I just talked to this small local gallery uh, called um, Open House Collective and just asked them if I could have an exhibition there, and then I just um, started painting every day for like the whole summer. And then the exhibition was planned for the 20th of March. And then, as you know, that's that's like the week that lockdown started. So um went into lockdown. I moved to Melbourne, um, got a studio here because my partner was living here and just haven't stopped since. Um, just been painting, yeah, for two years straight now. Wow. That's some dedication. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty amazing, you know, you've got to ask you got to ask. That's the message. Yeah, yeah just go for it. Take it till you make it completely. <laughs> yeah. um, so I know we've chatted before about how you decided to leave university. You actually started doing visual arts. You first did art history, then you did visual arts. Um, and you decided to leave to pursue your creative practice um, outside of that structure. Well, I guess you started outside of that structure as well. But, like, I really respect... Um, you making that call and I was wondering if you could speak to the challenges of in quotations learning within a colonial institution just because we learn many other places as well I'm going to say and did you experience any benefits at uni as well? Yeah definitely so I um, I really enjoyed my art history degree um, which was at the University of Queensland and we all say though that now like since COVID they've cu- they've cut a lot of the art history subjects so you only really learn about European art Australian art and American art they um, since I last checked they had cut the only Asian art course mm. you don't learn about you know any Middle East art African art anything like that so yeah it's very limited the learning um, that you do now at that institution in art history um, and you know all the arts across Australia have been cut dramatically and so you only really learn a very um, European western centric sort of history which is a real shame because uh, I mean, I've had to do a lot of my own research, um, even though I paid $30,000 for my education. Um, and, but, and so I started a Masters of, it's called a Masters of Contemporary Art program at VCA last year, and I only lasted five weeks. Um, and in 20, I think it was 2016, I started a different fine arts degree in Sydney, and I only lasted a term. I, I've gathered that I just sort of um, don't like being told what to do, <laughs> um, I think, and 
so it wasn't really, I don't know if it's necessarily the fault of the university or me, I don't know who that real problem is. Um, but yeah, I just, I, it could be in like sort of the methods of teaching art that I didn't appreciate sort of rather than, um, this wasn't at one, at one of the schools, I guess it was just both schools, just when you're, I guess, doing a fine arts degree, um, they want to mould you in a certain way because um, these are artists that are teaching you. So and art is so subjective. So it's fair enough that they want to sort of push their um, opinions of what art should be onto you. And I find it really hard to sort of take that advice because I, I have I know at one side of me I've like <clears throat> you know crippling self doubt, but also I think I'm better than everyone else. So <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't really work. Anymore. <laughs> university context (laughs) yeah and I think just the fact that they have to assess something like your creative practice your overall creative practice means that they're kind of bound to really um restrictive structures um and I think I also struggled with that for a long time wondering if it was the institution or me and then I guess I kind of came to the conclusion that it was a combination of both um, and it's okay not to feel comfortable or feel like you can have success within those structures. That's like a really normal thing to experience. Yeah. Um, so now I have a bit of a historical context question. So you are of Burmese and Bochala ancestry, and I was researching a little bit um, in preparation for this interview So Burma, a.k.a. Myanmar, was actually in our headlines this morning. So, yeah, shout out to everyone, all the Burmese folks out there and people struggling with the situation over there because it's really tough. Um, Yeah, so Burma was seized by the East India Company in the early 19th century and was officially claimed by the British in 1824 after years of atrocities uh, in South Asia, all over South Asia. This came only 12 years before Eliza Fraser and her husband were shipwrecked on Gari, aka Fraser Island, in 1836, which is your other line of ancestry. So the shipwreck of Eliza Fraser and her husband was a hallmark for the beginning of the violent and ongoing colonisation by the British on Butchala land. Both of these places have a rich and thriving pre-colonial culture, alongside a history of violent subjugation from the empire. How do you process these complex histories through your creative practice, and what does that feel like for you? Yeah, I will say, I don't know if I am fully able to process these humongous Mm. violent histories. Um, I do try to sort of um, include as much historical research in my paintings and practice and exhibitions as I can. Um, My first exhibition that was um, meant to be in 2020, but I had in 2021, um, looked at sort of uh, briefly at the history of the Queensland Native Police, um, which lasted from about 1850 to 1901. And in my research, I found that I had an ancestor that was a police officer. Um, And the, it was an extremely violent um, colonial history in that 50 years. It's estimated that over 44,000 Indigenous people were killed by these native police officers that were at 
you know, um, about seven troopers that were controlled by sort of a white officer. So it's an incredibly violent history, and I don't think I, anyone can fully process that violence. Mm. Um, and I'm also very aware that so much of the history that I've learned about Burma and Gari has been through um, books and research and university um, rather than from familial sort of stories um, and learning um, and that's because of these violent histories so yeah I, I don't think I can actually fully process these histories I'm trying to with all my exhibitions and projects to um, sort of take on sort of a bit of a bit of a family responsibility to learn about these unknown histories that we have these very deep connections to, but also, um, uh, yeah, don't know a lot about other than through my research and books. Yeah, there's um, so much erased erasure, I think, um, especially in familial lineages. Um, but, yeah, I find myself going to Wikipedia sometimes to research my own history, and I'm like, wow, but art can create a really nice space to use mm. imagination to reconnect with those things. Um, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been really nice and interesting to hear about your practice. Uh, I just wanted to ask, where can people learn more about your practice, see your work, or buy a piece to support you? Um, I'm most active on probably Instagram, um, which is mia.kin, K-H-I-N dot bow, B-O-E, um, and my website's miaboartist.com. Um, I've got an exhibition at the moment at Penny Contemporary in Hobart in Tasmania, and then my next one will be at Sydney Contemporary in September. Very exciting. I'm looking forward to that. I hope I can visit that show in Sydney. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we are on Thursday morning breakfast. And thank you again to Mia for joining us this morning. I think we might jump into a rundown of what we've had on uh, on the show today. Um, and also, uh, actually, just again, so exciting to have somebody back in the studio for an interview. I love studio interviews. Um, I'm really excited to do them more. If you're listening to this right now and you want to come in and talk about something, tell us. Uh, no, actually, that's a bad idea. We'll ask you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, just to jump into what we've had on the show today, uh, first up, we had a bonus segment from the upcoming episode of Women on the Line, featuring Catherine Gledhill-Tucker, Nungar technologist and digital rights activist on the board of Electronic Frontiers Australia, and Samantha Floriani, who is a digital rights activist and writer currently working as the program lead for Digital Rights Watch, speaking about queerness and digital spaces. And this is part of a broader conversation that's going to air on 3CR on Monday, the 4th of July from 8.30 to 9 a.m. So that is 3CR 855 a.m. or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Please go have a listen. And after that, we heard from Alex from the Renters or Housing Union or Rahu, who joined us to unpack some key insights from... Uh, around housing availability and affordability from the recently released 2021 census data, as well as in a report published this week by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, highlighting, highlighting rising rental stress and a lack of public housing availability in Australia. And then we were joined by Laura Riccardi from WISE, um, and she is a project lead on the regional strategy to improve sexual and reproductive health and has been an activist for reproductive rights. And they spoke to us about uh, abortion access, barriers to care, stigma, and how to support protecting these rights following the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the U.S. 
And after that, we're joined by Anastasia from Legal Observers New South Wales to evaluate some early impacts of the Roads and Crimes Legislation Amendment Act in New South Wales concerning... um, Sorry, considering the concerning crackdowns by New South Wales Police on Blockade Australia's Climate Justice Direct Actions and organising over the past two weeks. And lastly, we had our studio guest, Mia Bo, who is an artist from Brisbane with Butchala and Burmese ancestry. Mia's paintings respond to Empire's deliberate violent interferences with the cultural heritages of Burma and Gari, also known as Fraser Island. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mia. Excellent. And just one last plug. It is the last day of June and 3CR's Radiothon is still going today. So please head to www.3cr.org.au forward slash donate and make sure to nominate Thursday morning breakfast to get us to our goal. We're still about $50,000 away from that $250,000 goal and every little amount helps. Anything over $2 is tax deductible. So again, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And um, we will, I guess, catch you next week. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye. Bye. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. Did you enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now it's our Radiothon, and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help keep community strong for another year.